0: You cannot put results above people's values and ethics.
1: For the episode today, I'm thrilled to welcome Eduardo Caroni, founder and CEO at Atlas Governance, Brazil's leading software platform for corporate governance management that has recently raised $5 million Series A from the likes of Volpi Capital and DSK Capital. What a conversation we had with Edu about the philosophy of happiness, talking people on LinkedIn, and doing whatever it takes to start off a business. Let's get to it. Edu, it's a pleasure to have you as my guest. Welcome to The J-Curve.
0: Yoga, thank you very much for having me here.
1: Thank you for being with me today. I would love to start with a little bit of a storytelling. So tell me two stories. First, how did you break into private equity? And second, how did Atlas come to be?
0: Okay, first one is a funny story. I used to work with mergers and acquisitions as a consultant at Pricewaterhouse, and one day I decided I want to be a private equity guy, but most private equity funds in Brazil, they were hiring from two different universities. I haven't studied at any one of them. And so I started sending my curriculums to all of the private equity funds and I got into 10 interviews and 10 out of the 10 told me that they were going to call me later. They didn't, none of them. So at the last chance I had, the last interview I had, the person told me, you do We loved you, but we're going to call you later. And I told him, no, you're not going to call me later. You're going to hire me right here, right now. And I'm going to tell you why. Because I'm going to come here and work for free for six months. And if I'm not the first one to get into the office, the last one to get out, and the one who produces the most, six months later, you can just dismiss me. And it's fine. You're not going to spend a single dollar. But if I am the first one to get in, the last to get out, and the one who works the most, You're going to hire me with the same salary you pay for everyone here. And this person kind of creeped out at that time. (laughs)
1: It's very not (laughs) an approach to run the interview.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And he told me, "Wow, I do. You cannot work for free. We have to pay you something at least. So that was how I started my career in private equity.
1: Why did you want to be part of private equity? Like, What was in this asset class that attracted you? First
0: of all, I was much younger. And then money, of course, was something that was attracting me a lot at that time. But also, they seemed to have a lot of power. It was kind of opposite of what I was doing. I had to call like 400 companies to get 10 companies I could provide service to. And for these 400 companies, they were calling this person at the fund. And he was selecting the the ones that he was going to invest. With Atlas, I came back to calling the 400 companies again. (laughs) But this all started in 2015 with another story. I was at some board of directors of invested companies. And because of a problem that one of these companies had, all of my assets were frozen. I woke up one day. and I didn't have a credit card, a bank account anything. So I asked for an insurance that usually these companies retain. It's called DNO insurance. And a week later, I found out that they haven't retained the insurance at that time.
1: Why were your accounts frozen as a board member?
0: Yeah. Each country is a little bit different, but here in Brazil, board directors, there are administrators of the company and administrators are personally liable for what the company do. So whenever you have a problem with the company, the judge here can freeze all of your assets in Brazil, or at least the assets necessary to pay the debt. And in that case, the company didn't have any money. Some of the directors had, and so it all started. But the good thing about the DNO insurance usually is that they're going to pay for a lawyer, the defense, all of that, and provide you some money monthly for you to pay your bills. I was sure that we had approved that in a board meeting. took me one hour to find that among hundreds of emails. And it was in the meeting minute. We had approved it. The company should have hired it. They didn't do it. So that was the first time I wanted to digitalize the experience of governance. All of the documents, the regiments, the statutes of the companies and the shareholders agreements taken it off the papers and put it in a digital way. I looked at the solutions that were at the market at that time. You know, very old software, completely outdated, bad experience, nothing to do with the apps that we use nowadays. This was when I decided to start Atlas.
1: And why Atlas? What's in that name for you?
0: Atlas, as you know, comes from the book Atlas Shrugged, written by Ayn Rand, 1957. Still the best book ever and the book contains a philosophy called objectivism which is personal philosophy but it brings you to professional decisions the highest moral purpose of this philosophy is for a person to achieve his or her own happiness so life is not about making other people happy it's about making you happy if by the end of your life you're not happy you cannot blame anyone for that. It's your fault and your fault only. And what this philosophy brings to business is that you need to see each person as an individual. You need to treat each person as an individual. And this person should aim to find his or her own happiness and not my happiness. This is not why people work at Atlas. It's not to make you do happy. It's not to make their bosses happy. They need to achieve their own happiness. And the only way to do that is giving them an opportunity to show what they can do. So give them space to work. And then if they're well-succeeded, of course, you need to bring them up, promote them. Probably the next year of the company will come from inside Atlas.
1: How do you align people around the definition of happiness? How do they know when they come to Atlas that their ultimate goal is make them feel good within their organization, especially in the pretty community-driven culture as Brazilian culture is.
0: Okay, if we want to go into the philosophy of happiness, it's going to take more than a podcast, but I'm going to try to make it as simple as I can, the way I see it. So happiness is a conjunction of two things. First, doing what's right. Second, doing What gives you pleasure? The right part of it, making it right, don't don't make the wrong things. It's usually easier now to understand what gives pleasure to each person. That's the hard part of it. But usually you can see when the person is working with something that gives the person pleasure. And you can see as well when the person is suffering to do What she's doing. So, if you get someone who likes communication a lot, being with people, and put this person to develop software, you're probably going to make her suffer. If you have people that likes to be concentrated, working on their own, and put them to talk to customers and get clients, this person will also suffer. So, I think. We need to start to try to observe if people are being happy or suffering doing what they're doing.
1: I'll ask you one more question on happiness, just because the whole idea of being happy at work is counterintuitive, especially in the age where everybody's trying to seek work-life balance and draw a set line between work and life. What is happiness for you in personal and corporate environments? What gives you pleasure?
0: In personal, I would say wine. And a good barbecue. And of course, all of that with my family and friends, because there's no barbecue without family and friends. But that's all I need. I don't need to travel the world. I don't need, you know, an airplane, an helicopter, nothing of that. I need a good barbecue, family, friends, and a good wine. And I'm happy. Now, talking about the professional side of it, I'm not the work-life balance guy. Not at all. I like working 12 hours a day, maybe 13 hours a day. Sometimes on a Sunday morning, I open up my computer and put things to work. And it's fine. I'm really happy working 12 hours a day. And that's what's important. That gives me pleasure, a lot of pleasure. Ah, but you should be more time with your family. No, I shouldn't. (laughs) I'm happy the way I am. Each person has their own way to live life. It's
1: music to my ears. I work like 14 hours a day and I love what I do because when it's fashion, it's not work. But I think that there's a common misperception when people pretend that they don't work long hours, that they can work smart without first working hard. And I think that working smart without working hard doesn't really exist because first you need to understand what's to automate. And that only comes with long hours and deep engagement of what you're doing.
0: I agree. I agree.
1: So. And this question actually comes from your board member, Marcelo Lombardo. It's a super rare when a private equity investor with no tech background turns solo startup founder. So my question is, how did you build conviction around your abilities to deliver on your ambitions and your visions?
0: That's a pretty tough question. <laughs> there are two important things you need to be able to do in your life. First to sell, and second is to Deliver what you sold. Delivering what I have sold, which is a SaaS company, I kind of had that conviction that I could do that because of how much I was used to work. It's really hard to fail when you use 14, 15 hours a day. And of course, you're going to make a lot of failures and errors during this period. But if you put all of your heart on it and most time that you have, if you forget about family, friends and everything and go all in, it's hard to fail. Now, the second part of it, which actually is the first, you need to sell it. The most important ability in life is to sell. Because when you're hiring people, you're selling a work environment. When you're raising money, you're selling your idea. When you're gaining clients, you're selling a product. When you're looking for a date, you're selling yourself. Everything in life is sales. If you're not able to sell, it's going to be pretty hard to get good people, good investors, good clients, and sometimes even girlfriend or something. And I think I was able to sell the idea for everyone that works here and the investors and the clients. That was what happened at the end.
1: What was the rationale behind putting pretty significant amount of capital in the company, given that you've never actually started that tech company?
0: Yeah. When you're an objectivist, as I am, you tend to take a little bit more risks to achieve their own happiness, considering that you have one life. I understand a lot of people believe in other philosophies, but in my case, I think I have this life, I need to live it well, be happy, and make it work. That was why I skipped most of the money I had at that time, and my very well-paid job, because... It was a chance and opportunity. I couldn't miss it. If I missed it, I would be spending rest of my life asking myself, what would happen if I try it?
1: I remember when we talked before the recording, you mentioned that there were certain people that you really wanted to bring on board of Atlas as investors, no matter the check. And that gave you a substantial PR exposure and created this sense of urgency around the company. So if you could elaborate on that.
0: Yeah, for sure. One thing I did that worked pretty well, I made a list of names I wanted to be associated with. People that are well-known in Brazil, like the former president of Brazilian SEC, the former president of Brazilian McDonald's, and people that are... CEOs of very big companies. I made a list of 50 people. Most of them I didn't know or didn't know anyone who know them. And I started on LinkedIn sending individual messages to each one of them. And I, I was able to convince 21 out of the 50 to invest in that.
1: Great conversion.
0: Very good, good question.
1: <laughs> How did you do that? What was the message that you sent?
0: <laughs> you know, first of all, when you're starting to sell first clients, first investors, You need to do whatever it takes to get them. If you're talking about clients, big logos that will give you some recognition, give it for free. Even pay them to use the tool. Same thing about investors. You can put as much money as you want. You can pay me in 12 installments if you want. I don't care. I want you being an investor. I want you on board. And that made all of the difference because it wasn't a dual negotiating valuation or payment condition. We're saying, hey,
1: my, my minimum commitment is 250000
0: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's it. You know, I would do whatever it takes to get these people with me. And it worked pretty well. I made a very small check, somewhere around $10,000. And um, if anyone told me, I want to give you $5,000, I would say, it's fine. I wanted these people with me. They came with me in this journey and they're going to earn a lot of money and I'm very happy about that. Some of them are at our board today. Some of them have been board directors before. There's still people that raise our flag and tell Atlas is the best company in Latin America. They're still the ones selling Atlas. And every time we're in articles and news they're mentioned as well.
1: Now, this is great referral. Going back to happiness, I remember when we talked before this recording, you mentioned that your greatest passion is hiring and you are the most prolific LinkedIn user. What are some of your main tips for hiring great people? First
0: of all, we are a software company. We don't have anything that's physical. All of the value that Atlas has is people. People are the ones developing the software Testing is quality, selling the software, giving support to the clients. People are the ones taking care of our people as well. This is why we say our most important value is human capital. And capital because we we need to invest our time and our money in people. Considering that, it wouldn't make any sense for me as a CEO of Atlas to spend more time with anything else than with people. And sourcing talent, it's pretty difficult. But I'm going to tell you what I have learned over this past five years, six years now. It's really funny. We have a culture committee every month where everyone gets together, of course, virtually. But lots of people that are in different cities, they gather in their cities and then they go for a beer after the culture committee. But the interesting thing about hiring is that usually when people start talking about their story at Atlas, most of them say, it all started with a message from a duet LinkedIn. (laughs) And what went right and what went wrong? I would say if you hire people who is going to give their best effort, that have the same values that you have, that your company has, and the same ethics, it's going to work out. Not everyone will be a direct or a CEO, but it's going to work out. You cannot put results above people, value and ethics. And that was when I did something really wrong. One of the people I hired, one director, in fact, was a person that had very, very strong results on the other company and didn't seem to have the same values and ethics that we did. But I thought, it's going to bring more results. Let's try it out. Why not? And we did have some good results for a few months. And then we found out fraud inside the company. It's not a big company, 250 people nowadays, but there was financial fraud. And this person, of course, was dismissed. And after that sued the company. So the most important thing is we hired someone thinking of results and not the core values of the company and the core ethics of the company. That was a very big mistake and we're paying for that. So what I would say, we need to hire people based on the values and the ethics.
1: How do you test for values and ethics as you hire? Because you need to make a decision relatively fast. How do you know if the person is a fit?
0: You put the person in front of very tough questions. And it's not about the answer. It's about the reaction she has. Because the answer will probably be a good answer by the end. But the first reaction tells the way she feels. So if I ask you, what would you do if you saw... I don't know, maybe a case of racism in a meeting inside our company. Some people will get angry with that and say, this is not acceptable. We cannot have that. I would go to the Denounce channel. I would call my boss. I would say everything. And there are some people that will answer that with, this is not right. I mean, someone should do something. So the first one would be hired here. The second one, probably not. And there are people that actually say, well, if it's not my area, it's not my problem.
1: How did you manage to build such a diverse organization? 50% plus of C-level execs are females. Was that intentional?
0: It is absolutely intentional. You cannot build that without intention. Or you can build that, but it may take 100 years. Nowadays, 56% of everyone in Atlas are women, and 55% of C-level executives are women as well. So a little bit more women than men.
1: That is pretty pretty impressive. Personally, I'm just loving hearing that.
0: Yeah, that's true. But it has to be intentional. For example, 56% of people here in Brazil are black people. And when you look at companies, you don't have that kind of representation. You don't have this kind of female representation on the C-level. You don't have black people representation. In most levels, I would say, for example, the investment market where I was working, I would say it would be maybe 2%, maybe 1% black people. And I would say 10 maybe 15% of women. It's a very, very low representation. And that doesn't have anything to do with merit, it does have a lot of things to do with the way the society was structured in the past, and we still carry that. And the only thing for you to be fair is to work as much as you can to have the same representation you have in your company that your society has. It's not the same in every society. So we do now hold operations in Brazil and Mexico, different matters. In Mexico, we're talking about people that comes from Indians. In Brazil, we have a lot of black people, but we chose to chase three indicators that are really important. So first gender, then race. In the third one, we're working with LGBTQAI AI plus people. So we do have, you know, affinity groups for women, for black people and LGBT. And these people meet once a month and they bring to the C-level of the company, the request that they have to make Atlas a better place for them to work. And we're working on every single demand that they have, but it all starts with recruiting. So we make a census every six months, but every month we do have the statistics. And if we have a C-level opening and we're still lacking Black people on the sea level of Atlas, which is true. We try at least for two months to find someone with the characteristics.
1: What are the ultimate benefits or, you know, impact of that on Atlas's performance?
0: The results couldn't be better because most people recognize that most companies don't give this kind of value to them. They don't give them this space. And I can tell you, these people, they work much harder to be here.
1: I remember I had Manuela from People Saudi on the podcast a while ago, and she told me about the crazy retention rate of 97, 98% within the company because diversity is so important. People feel welcome and people feel included. But when you think about the actual like business performance on the customer side, do you see that this difference of perspectives that is brought by people coming from different backgrounds, genders, skin colors? Do you see the immediate impact of how you work with customers, how you sell.
0: Of course, because again, each person is and should be treated as an individual. And sometimes you're dealing with a woman at the other side of the screen. Sometimes you're dealing with a black person. Sometimes you're dealing with an LGBT person. And whenever you have diversity in your company, you're going to be able to have a much better perception on what they need, what are their problems. And of course, you're going to be able to serve better your customers. For me, it's kind of obvious that whenever you have on the other side of the screen, a mother with a child, we're going to be much better with someone who has been a mother as well, talking to this person, than with someone that have never had a child and don't care about that. It makes a lot of difference. You have to have this affinity.
1: I totally agree with that. Given your experience of serving on boards of large of mature companies, and now live in the reality of early stage founder yourself. What are the most important traits startups should incorporate from large businesses' governance practices?
0: I would say what they don't do is risk and control management, and they should. What I see a lot is people spending a lot of money without any kind of risk and control management. What happens is that they jump off the cliff and they die. You need to structure a business. Of course, you can always be a startup if you're talking about the definition of startup, of having exponential growth and all of that. But in the business side of it, you need to build a business. You need to build something that is sustainable, like an electric car that will use solar power and not more gasoline and more gasoline, because someday we're going to be out of gasoline. Most startup founders, they don't think of being sustainable. And what we do here, we always have enough money to go to the break-even point. If for some reason we need to make an additional investment and we're not able to raise money, we don't do that. We keep our track. We may lower growth, but we're going to be sustainable.
1: How do you optimize for sustainability when you're a seed company, like risk control management? Does that mean that you implement or use certain tools or certain processes in place? What it actually means for startups?
0: I would say a very good financial control, but more than financial control is the financial mindset. We cut costs, we cut expenses every single month. Every time we need to promote someone or give them a higher salary, we relate that to the growth that we have. So if we're going to have, I don't know, a hundred thousand reais more in monthly recurring revenue this month, we're going to use a third of that in promotions and salary raises. So two thirds of that will be designated to make our cash flow better. Usually what people do is they... Think of promotions and salary raises in one meeting, and they talk about budget in other meeting. We don't do that. I think everything here should be related.
1: If everything goes right, what does the future look like for Atlas Governance five to 10 years from now? What's the scale of your ambitions?
0: Ah, 2027 will be a public company with $120 million in annual recurring revenues, probably 2,000 people working and serving. Today, we're in six countries. We still have 186 left to go, so it's a lot of work to do in the next five years.
1: Very precise targets that you have in (laughs) 2027.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It is, it is.
1: I want to switch to a different topic and deep dive into two things that actually are pretty spectacular about how you run operations and business in Atlas Governance. Go-to-market and geographical expansion. And I would like to start with the go-to-market. When we think about launching a product, a service tailored to the needs of large, private or public companies, what are the critical things founders need to know? Not just necessarily in building poor governance platform, but in general, figuring out GTM and enterprise sales.
0: First of all, as I told you, we need to sell and deliver, right? We need to start with the deliver. Because most software that is produced by startups is not ready to be sold to big enterprises. They do have lots of security issues. They probably are going to make penetration testing on your software. And most startups have never done that by themselves. They should. If you have never done that, do that today. Hire a pen tester, get all the results, and correct all of the security failures that you have. So... First of all, security, you need to have a very secure software. There are lots of different methodologies that you can hack into software. And big enterprises, they do have methodologies to make very good assessments. Some of the banks that use Atlas spend more money annually on the pen testing on Atlas than with the license that they pay us. So cybersecurity is and will be something that will divide most startups in the future and of course it's a completely different sale it's not like sending a contract signing a contract and releasing the software for the client you have much more processes you have to go through legal you have to go through it and make their assessments so you need to have a team ready to go through this process it's a very long process you're going to have to provide lots of information and I would say that's usually the biggest problem that startups have. They're not ready to go through this process.
1: What's the sales cycle look like when you think about selling to this segment of customers?
0: I do have customers that I just signed that I started talking with two years ago. (laughs) But I would say six months, maybe seven months. That depends on the urgency that the customer has. So...
1: Product security, as well as the understanding how to work through the process over an extended period of time, what are the unique challenges of selling to large enterprise in Brazil and Latin America that you know of?
0: I think support is different from any other country in the world. In Brazil and Latin America, I would say 90% of the companies are familiar companies. We're used to having, you know, a lot of contacts, talking to people, be friends with people you work with. It's different from the United States and other countries. It's a completely different culture. And it's a very big opportunity because foreign companies, they don't invest as much as they should invest. For example, my competitors, they don't care about Latin America. One of them have like, Three employees to serve every single country in Latin America. The other one uses a local company to resell its product. So they don't even have one employee here. We have 250 people to give support to Latin America, and we didn't get to the point of excellence that we're aiming at, and support is always a very big problem. People here in Brazil, they don't want to call a number in the United States and, and talk in English with someone to solve a problem with a user that they have here.
1: How did you acquire first 10 customers and how is the customer acquisition strategy evolving at scale?
0: First customers, you need to do whatever it takes. So, funny story of mine, I was at a few boards of directors at that time. So, I tried to convince them to use my software. They were the first ones. They said, no, we're not going to pay for that. I was between giving it for free. But then I had a better idea. I said, you can deduct it from my salary and then pay Atlas. So I was paying for the company to use my software, but it was paying Atlas. It was really important for me. That was how we started. The first six customers were companies I was at the board of director.
1: It's that rare moment when your private equity experience actually is very applicable <laughs> for a startup founder.
0: <laughs> that's that's true story. But for free works fine as well. I just wanted to have some revenue at Atlas. I think it was something more of you know pride. I started earning less money and cutting my personal expenses as well. But I had six customers of Atlas, so that was a. A good start.
1: And how did the strategy, customer acquisition strategy, evolve once you exhausted your personal network of board representation?
0: Yeah, that that was pretty fast, personal network. (laughs) (laughs) But after that... I started with a sales team. I hired one person, which is Fernando, one of our sales directors today. He used to work with telecom. So he was used to work with very difficult, big companies. And it was a very interesting experience because we started to get to know our clients. And he closed the first five deals after my personal network went away. But it took us four to six months to close each deal. And I had no idea at that time that our sales cycle would be is large. That was the reason we started investing a little bit more. And we closed the first year with 14 clients. And after that, we scaled it. But we started with Fernando, which we called a full-stack salesperson. In order to scale, we started structuring what we call sales pods today. So now we have the YLON funnel. So we have inbound and outbound. In inbound, we have a very good marketing team. And what's really important is that we're investing a lot in content creation because, in my opinion, it's the only thing sustainable in the long term. Ads are going to be much more expensive. That depends on how much the competitor is investing. That depends on many other things that you don't control. So in my opinion, content will be the king in the future. Now, we do have to invest in ads today, but content will be the king in the future. Good content. And we have the outbound as well. So we start with the LDRs today, making lists of companies and pre-qualifying them, then scheduling the meetings. And then the meetings are being held by the account executives that go all the way through signing the contract. So our pod today, one LDR provides companies for four BDRs and four BDRs provide meetings for two account executives. This is what we call one pod. So in Brazil, we have six pods. In Mexico, we have four pods. In Colombia, we have four pods. Peru, two pods. Argentina, Chile, one pod.
1: And talking about international scale up, Colombia, Mexico, Peru, and Chile, you know, I spoke with a bunch of startups last week and my advice to them was always start locally, build a monopoly in a given vertical, in a given geography, and then figure out the scale. You did the opposite. You are still an early stage company, and you're already present in six markets, and you aim to build like a global empire by 2027. What was the rationale behind this scale-up and how you thought about opening new markets?
0: So first of all, we're the leader in Brazil. We have right now 450 clients. 25% of the listed companies in the Brazilian stock market uses Atlas already. The first competitor has 80, and they're selling their product for 12 years. We're available for four only. And the third one has 60 also selling their products for 12 years. And every single month, two, three, four of their customers migrate to Atlas. We haven't lost a single customer to any one of them since 2018. So it's a matter of time they'll be out of Brazil. We reached cash flow break-even twice. So we were able to be a sustainable Brazilian company. And we have right now around 50 people working in sales. It didn't make sense to invest and have a bigger sales team in Brazil because I think we would lose a lot of the efficiency that we have right now. And I did have money available because we raised a Series A round. And I saw that competitor had the same attention that they have in Brazil, which is none and two other Latin American countries. So I said, it's going to be as easy as... It's been in Brazil. And this is what we're doing right now. We're investing in Mexico, Colombia, Peru, Chile, and Argentina. And it's been pretty successful.
1: And if you were to scale to the United States, the core market for majority of your competitors, how would your strategy be different? How do you think about scaling to more competitive markets?
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I'm not thinking of. <laughs> not at all. You know, best thing is not having competition. So instead of looking at the United States, where I know that my customer acquisition costs would be the double for the same amount of revenue. I'm looking at other countries, development countries. I don't want to go to the United States, at least not today. Maybe someday, but not today.
1: But I still agree with the strategy to me. It's just the fascination of founders in emerging markets with the United States is pretty crazy because like you go there, you completely screw up your unit economics. You spend way more money. Your revenue is shrinking because the markets are highly commoditized. And I do think that scaling to other emerging markets with a similar dynamic where like zero competition across huge markets, that's such an amazing opportunity to build a sustainable and resilient business. Even considering always currency devaluation risks, politics risk, I do think it's a huge opportunity, and I would love more founders to do this.
0: Yeah, but that's VC's fault. You know, we had a few offers last year on our Series A round, and they told me, I'm going to give you more money than you're asking for to go to the United States. I said, no, I don't want more money. I don't want to go to the United States. I'm fine in here.
1: (laughs) You definitely don't have any ego problems.
0: Not at all.
1: (laughs) I'm going to move to a rapid fire section, I'll ask you five short questions and I'll appreciate your immediate responses. Let's dive right in. The first question is, what's one book or piece of content every founder should read and why?
0: I'm, I'm kind of suspicious to tell about it, but I think everyone should read Atlas Shrugged, <laughs> <laughs> and, and not, not only because of the philosophy, but it, it tells stories of business people and it will tell you lots of fights you're going to have to fight through your journey. So lots of the situations that are in the book, I have pass through them. But more than that, I think if you get inside the philosophy that's in the book, it's going to help you and teach you to get to the other side, to get to the success part of it, but to make the journey the right journey, to make it with ethics, with a high sense of moral and values, because this is kind of tricky. you know. Sometimes you have lots of decisions to make and the wrong decisions can kill you. The right decisions may make you go slower, and the right decisions are always the best ones.
1: Fair enough. What do you strongly believe in right now that you're probably wrong about?
0: There are lots of different startups that are starting up right now that don't have sustainable business models. And it's not about selling or scaling. It's about being sustainable. It's about understanding that the margin that you're going to generate from your products or services sold, is going to be able to pay all of your expenses and costs and leave some profit on the table as well. But I've been wrong before about that.
1: Really? I I feel like you're not wrong. Tell me about the very first time you made money and what did it teach you about business?
0: Six years selling popcorn on the street. And what I have learned is that anyone can sell popcorn because my neighbor started to selling popcorn as well with a lower price. So what I have learned and what I have decided is not to compete in a market where anyone can copy your idea and sell what you sell. So
1: six years old, you already knew that you don't want to be in a commodity business.
0: <laughs> no, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what are the three things about growth that are counterintuitive?
0: I would say, first, think of long-term, always. There are lots of decisions you can make to make more money on the short term. For instance, when we were starting, a bank wanted to use our software, but they wanted to give us a lot of money to build the software the way they wanted to. And that was more money than the seed round that we received. So it was a very tough decision, but we thought of long-term and we said, no, we need to build something that will be valuable for everyone, not for this bank. So we said no to a lot of money and I didn't sleep for a couple of days, (laughs) but I would say five years later, it was the right decision. Second one is you need to do what's right. You know, morality is something that could go... Up and down, depending on the day or the opportunities that are in front of you. And what I can tell you is that if you always do the right thing, you may grow slower, you may, I don't know, lose some opportunities, but you'll never have a very, very big problem in your life. So do the right thing. And the third thing, which is all related as well to the thing we talked about hiring people, is you need to put people above results.
1: Which red-gray is the best representation of your personality and why? You tell me yours, i tell say goodbye.
0: <laughs> okay. I think I'm a Cabernet Franc.
1: Why would that be?
0: Yeah, I think I'm a little bit more acid than the average. I may be a little bit more tannic as well. So not easy to drink. And people that work with me, I think they, they do know that. Not everyone loves it. So I would go with a Cabernet Franc, which is actually one of the ones I like the most.
1: <laughs> I'll be Albino, be because it's such a fragile grape, really, really hard to deal with. You know, grows in a cooler climate, a low yield. That would be me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Except for the fragile part of it, I think it's it's fine.
1: <laughs> Ed, thank you so much for being with me today. It's such a pleasure.
0: My pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The J-Curve. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Edu as much as I did. To learn more about Atlas Governance, go to welcome.atlasgov.com. And to hear more from us, visit our website at www.thejcurve.com. Subscribe to The J-Curve on Spotify or Apple. Or follow me on Instagram at Olga Moslykova with KH. Thank you for being with me today.